What you munching on? I hope you brought enough for everybody. <laughs> you can hear me munching? I hear everything. Well, that's scary. I better put my pants back on. I heard that. <laughs> Back to the bin. I think you need to bring the show in with uh, something of what you were just saying about hero sausage. <laughs> I've had more than enough of hero sausage. <laughs> Can you ever get enough, really? Oh, I'm sure my blood pressure can get more than enough <laughs> between the bacon and I'm sure there was a ton of salt and uh, and all the fat and everything, but, but it was delicious. For all I know, there was some, you know, some body that Hero disposed of in that. <laughs> yeah, but you guys know. sausage. Go ahead, eat, eat, manja. It's good. <laughs> Is this pork or beef? Uh, neither. It was that kid's parents from that, that one South Park episode. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Why don't we bring this baby in? Okay. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined here tonight by Mr. Scott H. Gardner. Hello. And the H stands for hello. <laughs> yes, it does. We were uh, having an on-again, off-again Dr. Bill appearance tonight. Uh, he, he was scheduled to appear. He had a book. Then he couldn't appear because he had to work. Then he thought he was going to get home early, so he was going to be back on. Then he had to review something for work, so he couldn't do it. And at that point, my head was spinning, so I don't even know. <laughs> Poor Bill. Yeah, Bill, Bill has had a tough time with his work schedule lately, which I'm sure you can relate to. Yes, I can. <laughs> I very well can. So, we got any comic stuff to talk about before reading a book, or are we going right to a book? Are we jumping in? Or we got um... I'm trying to think. I don't, yeah, I don't think I have anything new in comic-y. I've actually, uh, you know, full confession, I haven't actually been reading comics much lately. <gasps> uh, I, 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 I'm back. You know, I, I, I constantly, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before, but I constantly float back and forth between comics and books. You know, I'll read, co- you know, comics for, you know, weeks, months, whatever, and and that'll just be my thing, and then you know I'll get just kind of burned out on that, and it's like okay, it's time to read some books for a while. So then I'll you know read several books, and, and I just kind of float back and forth that way. And so at the moment, I've just been on a uh, on an actual real book kick for a while. So so what are you real booking right now? A uh, bunch of books about the World's Fair. <laughs> Still, it's still my my current and, and latest obsession. So I've been scarfing up uh, all the books I can find on the cheap on the subject, and just I've been enjoying reading those, having a good time with that. That's cool, though. and it's I mean it's a labor of love. So there you go. You can't you can't criticize that one. I don't think. Yeah, I just uh, I just ordered today. I don't know if it's gonna make it. Uh, I'm you know I'm friends with uh, Jeff Vaughn who. Uh, He's, he's a creator who he's been at my LCS quite a few times. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten into some conversations and we've become a little friendly. So, you know, to the point now where, he, you know, he knows me and when we see each other, we always talk for a while. And uh, he and he and another guy, Vincent Spencer, who I'm friendly with, do a book together called Zombie Proof. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's kind of like 
It's kind of like The Walking Dead. I haven't even had a chance to read it yet, but it's kind of like The Walking Dead crossed with uh, Evil Dead, you know, with that kind of sensibility about it. Right. And they recently did a Kickstarter project, and I uh, I had posted a link on the website, and I, I supported it, and it, it, it met its goals, and I'm waiting for the book now so I can read it. And then he has another book he had been telling me about it one day. It's something he's he's kind of had brewing since he was like in his early 20s. He's, he's like around the same age as me now. So it's something he's been working on for a long time. And uh, it's called McCandles and Company. It's like a kind of a private eye thing. It, lo- it looks to be kind of a moonlighting kind of adventure series. And uh, that was on a Kickstarter. And he had sent me the link. And I kind of sat on my hands for a while. And then just today I ordered it. And I, I shared the link on the Freaks page. Uh, but apparently the Kickstarter ends tomorrow, and it doesn't look like they're going to meet their goal on it. So we were messaging back and forth. I'm not sure if he has to pull it or if he can relist it. But he had showed me at, when, at Eternal Con, he had shown me some of the original art for it, and it looks to be really good. So I'm hoping this thing gets printed. So that's my comic news for the week. <laughs> I saw that, uh, that that had happened with another creator recently, too. A creator that... Come to think of it, I think maybe on your shit list after the the thing that we were discussing <laughs> recently. So I I won't say his name, but I, I know that he uh, had a Kickstarter um, for a for a project that I thought was a done deal quite some time ago. But anyway, he had a, a Kickstarter for it, and he had the Kickstarter, and then it didn't meet its goal within a certain date, so he extended it, and then he still didn't meet it within that extension date, and then last I saw it was kind of like a, well, thanks, I'm not sure where this is going from here kind of thing, so. Well, if he's on my shit list, then screw him. <laughs> I'm just uh, I don't, I'm not I'm not entirely sure about the the Kickstarter thing. I often wonder how how does that work exactly, especially when they don't actually meet the goal. Do they still keep the money? Oh, no, 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 no. You, in fact, uh, this is only the one I did today. Assuming it goes forward, is only the third Kickstarter project I've supported, uh, and and they don't charge you. They don't actually put the charge on your card until they meet their goal. Oh, okay. The first one I, I supported was a, a Jimmy Palmiotti one called uh, Weapon of God. Mm-hmm. It was it was a pretty decent read. It was a little... Like, you could tell it was almost like a screenplay. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of a comic. But, but I, I like, I thought even then, like, if he should be able to sell this as a, you know, as, as a screenplay at some point, as a film property, and they produce it, and it turns out to be popular. A lot of big ifs there. But if that happened, and I have the Kickstarter book that was, you know... What what could it have been? Maybe a thousand printed, something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that would be a big ticket item then, right? To have the original run on something like that. So you know, I'm not big into the speculator market, but it was something I wanted to read anyway. So that was you know no problem ordering it, and I got that. And then I like I said, I supported the zombie proof form, which I should be getting. I think uh, last time I spoke to Jeffy, it said it was going to the printer soon. So that I should be getting in the next month or two, I would guess. And I think I may be actually having Jeff and, and Vincent on the show to talk about this stuff. They had uh, expressed, you know, I mentioned it to them, they had both had expressed an interest in coming on. It's a matter of if our schedules line up. Uh, but I, I do like, you know, I, I'm not a speculator. I've never been a speculator. But if it's something I want to support, and it turns out that it's something like that that has an extremely low print run, eh, I'm not so, I'm not so uh, upset about that. Right. You know, because all of a sudden, like I said, something like that could all of a sudden become a big ticket item. You know, some something along those lines kicks off and becomes, you know, the next Walking Dead. 
you know, Walking Dead number one is worth a ton of money, and that was a pretty fairly large distribution. Right. So something like this, you know, has probably got one-tenth of the distribution of Walking Dead number one. So I'm thinking, you know, it, it, like I said, if it ever caught on, it would be worth, probably be worth big bucks. At which point I would gladly part with it. <laughs> no sentimentality there. Ah, screw sentimentality. <laughs> sentimentality doesn't put gas in the car. This is very true. It doesn't pay the rent either. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so I'm cool. trying to think of what other comics I've been reading. I haven't read a heck of a lot of other stuff. I've, I've read a couple of older things, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, I have to write some synopsises as I read some of these older things and just have them on hand so that they're ready to go when we record shows. You know, so I don't have to how, scramble. I, I, I was having this exact same thought the other day. I'm like, why why don't I just do that? You know, why don't I just have, you know, umpteen synopses already ready to go? Because I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly reading something and I, I don't know why I don't. I'm just, I don't know, just lazy or forgetful or whatever, I guess. I mean, that's a great idea, and I've had it several times before. But I, just, I know it's a great idea because I've had it. <laughs> <laughs> just never actually do it, you know what I mean? Oh, I, I, another thing I wanted to mention was uh, I did finally get my uh, my website going for, my, for this year's cancer fundraiser, mm-hmm. which we had the rant uh, two weeks before, right. two weeks ago about that. In response to the rant... Mark Kallenbach, who we know of his artistic skills, mm-hmm. and Kyle Benning, who I was unaware of his artistic skills, have both volunteered to uh, to do sketches for me to give away to people who donate money. Nice. So uh, we already have a couple of donations from people, you know, friends of the show uh, that have shown up on my website, and I'll keep publicizing it, through, you know, every so often on the uh, on the Freaks page, on the Back to the Bins page, on my own personal page. Uh, and anybody who I know of being a comic book guy, you know, comic fan, I'm going to put put their name in a hat and I'm going to draw it out. And any stuff I have, I'm going to, uh, you know, give it to those people and I'll just ask them for their uh, address and I'll mail it to them when the time comes. Uh, but if you're somebody who I don't personally interact with and you choose to, to donate and you'd like to be, you know, in, in that hat, let me know that you donated and you'd like to be in there because otherwise I might not realize you're a comic book person. Uh, just send me a private message on Facebook or something, and and you know, and I'll be happy to put your name in on the, uh, you know, in the list of people that I'm going to choose from to to get this stuff. So, I'm trying to think if I, I've ever seen Kyle's art, and I'm I'm I don't recall ever seeing it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I ever have. I think I think we actually have a lot of uh, artistic folks, you know, in our in our little community, in our little our little club. That, uh, that, you know, I hadn't thought of that before. Now I feel like a dope that I didn't think of that before, but that's actually a really good idea to just, you know, go with the people that we may have in the community that might be willing to, uh, you know, might be interested in something like that and just, you know, do it amongst us. I don't know. It's, that's easy for me to say. I have like zero artistic talent. So, you know what I mean? I, I don't know what the viability is of something like that, but you know, I know that we do have some very talented folks though. I have a little bit but not nearly as much as I used to think I had. Right. Like there was a time when I was, when I was a teenager and, you know, in my young early 20s, I, I actually thought I was going to be a comic book artist. That was my, you know, that was my career goal. Right. And, but I, I, not only did I not have enough talent to do it, I also never had the formal training to do it. And when I look at some of the things I drew, you know, some things are halfway decent, but all they are are copies of pictures or poster type things. Right. But when it came to drawing things originally, you know, my, my sense of anatomy is weak my sense of of you know dynamic posing is very weak 
you know, if I had to critique my own artwork, I would not be too favorable about it. <laughs> so, you know, I thought I was talented, but I was wrong. So you it's, said you, you know, had a, your, your sense of anatomy was weak. And I'm thinking, you know, like I was picturing like a guy with like a foot coming out of his forehead or something. <laughs> like that. Now, you, you know what I tend when, when I when I would draw, I would tend to draw everybody with basically the same exact physique. There were no distinctions. Uh, even a lot of the facial features didn't have enough to distinguish them from one another. Right. Um, unless I was specifically copying somebody else's. If I took a John Byrne poster and I tried to copy it, I could usually do a halfway decent job of kind of recreating his style and drawing the picture and, and having it look similar. Not exactly, but similar to what he would do. Or Kirby or Romito, whoever. Uh, and that's what made me think I was a talented artist. But when it came down, when it came time to actually draw things originally on my own... Uh, again, I think I was very much lacking in what I had of the skill I thought I had. You could have had a hell of a career in the nineties. Yeah, well, we, well, when you, yeah, I could have had a career when, when back when you'd, uh, you know, the back of the comic said draw whoever and send it into the art institute. Do you remember those those ads? Oh yeah, but I mean everything you're describing of you know I can copy so and so artist and it looks really good, but I can't draw for shit on my own. You just described like half the people in the industry in the nineties. Yeah, well, in the 80s, both Marvel and DC turned me down because I sent them both samples. Really? Oh, yeah. And, the, wow. and, and to be honest with you, the DC rejection was much nicer than the Marvel. The DC you know, uh, rejection said something to the effect of, thank you for your submission. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a position for you at this time, but you know, keep working at it. And you, know, you, 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 know, you might eventually reach the point where you can do this for a living. Uh, Marvel just kind of was like, yeah, your work sucks. <laughs> you know at the time my, my my problem was i effectively sent them 10 to 15 poster type images right they're not interested in poster type images they were interested in seeing you tell a story in pictures right so what i needed to do was to to actually basically create my own comic and send it into them as as a, an art sample and then they might might have considered me but I, I again i don't think i had the talent to do that I don't know if there's any truth in it or not, but one of the things I had heard was one of those little, like, you know, quote-unquote insider secrets of, of how to get noticed was to send them samples of things uh, that were not superheroes, where it was just, like, mundane, everyday life type of thing. You know, like, you know, mom putting, you know, putting dinner on the table or, you know, dad washing the car. What You know, just, like, real-life, everyday stuff so that they could get a real feel of, you know, your artistic ability, your ability, you know, did you capture anatomy? Were you able to capture like the world out the window kind of thing, as opposed to, as you're saying, you know, poster images of, you know, Superman or, you know, that sort of thing. So getting a sense of true artistry as opposed to, you know, just drawing a poster. And uh, like I said, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how much truth is in that, but it, it makes a certain amount of sense that they wanted to see, somebody who was an artist as opposed to somebody that could just do, uh, you know, a, a flashy cover or, or, you know, as you say, a poster or t-shirt image or something like that. Cause that's only going to take you so far. Exactly. You know, you were talking, uh, uh, in the, in the latest episode, as, as of this recording, the latest episode that went up about, um, um, Alex Ross and how, when he came along and made such a big splash and everything, you know, you were really into him, but that, you know, slowly over time just kind of was like, okay, I'm, I forget exactly how you worded it, but you know, it's just basically how you got tired of him. 
it's funny because I was the same way. And I think it's because of that. It's not that I don't think he's a good artist. I, I do. I, I've, you know, when he did, um, you know, Kingdom Come and some other projects where it was his art throughout. Obviously, the guy has storytelling chops. He can tell a story. But because he chose frequently not to and just became the default cover guy for like everything covers, I, I quickly just kind of burned out on him because it became this thing of it's not that it's not good. It's not that it's not pretty to look at it, but it became just poster art after a time. I don't know if that makes any sense. But oh, it totally I, does. I, I, it's not even so much that he lost an edge. It's that you're just not seeing anything but that after a time. And it, it just became a little bit much like, tell me a story as opposed to just continually drawing me, you know, this, this dynamic poster image. I, I don't know. I, it, I'm not sure how much sense I'm making of it, but it, it's well, why I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a, a comparison on that. And I'm going to stay away from uh, man of steel and Batman V Superman. But my main criticism of the Watchmen as a movie, not as a comic series, as a movie, was that Zack Snyder could, he has a good eye for putting together a scene where you can kind of almost recreate a comic page in the scene and right. have everything in there and have it be looking dynamic. But every character in there, when I watched the movie, felt soulless. Mm -hmm. there, there, there didn't feel to be any depth to anybody. It just seemed like they were reading their lines and doing nothing more. Right. And that's the way I feel about Alex Ross's art. It's just there. There's I'll nothing, yeah. you know, you, you don't have that emotion. You don't have the, that, that sense of, of grandeur that you did when his heart was truly in it. When he did Kingdom Come and when he did Marvels, I felt that. Since then, when I've read things like he did that Justice League, uh, I think it was like a 12-issue uh, series. I can't even remember what the name of it was or, or even, you know, the, those treasury books that he did. They feel they feel kind of empty, much in the way Watchmen did when I saw it. Well, I, I know exactly what you mean, because for me, it's I, I get the soulless thing. But more than that, I actually to me, it more moves to the realm of absurdity as opposed to soulless. And, and I give you, you know, I, I've said this before, but I that's why I'm strongly opposed to too much realism in in my comics whether it's in the art of an actual comic book or it's taking a comic book and presenting it in another medium say live action film i think when you take the comic book medium and you push it past a certain line and i i, I won't profess to understand where that line is but every concept has a line be it superman batman whoever all of these comic book concepts have a line somewhere. And when you push them past that line, then because you're you're pushing something that was never meant to be real into the realm of realism or sometimes even quote unquote ultra realism, I think it makes the absurd stand out that much more and makes it, you know, dare I say ultra absurd or even silly. Ultimately, I have come to believe that that's my because I've struggled with this to understand, you know, on a, on a psychological level, what is my real beef with certain things that I have a big beef with uh, comic book films that just don't work for me? 
um, I hate to beat a dead horse, but Dark Knight. I've tried to understand what is it about that 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 just bugs the crap out of me so much. And I think with that particular one, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Is I think when you you've pushed this so far into that that attempt to make the dark, gritty, whatever of it ultra real. All you've ultimately done is make the absurd spotlighted. You, you've shown a, a, a spotlight right on the absurd, and then it becomes sillier than it actually was. I don't know if that's making any sense, but that's just that's how I feel about it. It, so, it does make sense. I, I do understand what you're saying, and and you and I have differed on Dark Knight because I, I like Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not like Dark Knight Rises so much. I did not like Batman v Superman at all. So, I mean, we do have, you know, with some points we agree on, some we don't. Uh, and maybe that line is in a different place for each person. Right. So, oh, so yeah, that, that might be, that might be what it is too. between you and I as far as that difference goes, because we both, you know, uh, we both revel in the Marvel movies. And and so, to some extent, to me, part of the thing that I enjoy about those is they're not embarrassed of their source material. Right. And I think that kind of goes to what you're saying a little bit. They, they don't try and say, oh, that couldn't happen in the real world. Don't do it. They say, you know, OK, they might they might say, let's, you know, let's tighten that up a little bit and, you know, and make it a little more realistic. But they don't, you know, they don't seem to have a problem with costumed adventurers being out there. And that's one of the things about superhero stuff that's always annoyed me is the, well, nobody would wear a costume like that. Well, that's what they do in the comics. Just let it just go with it. Right. You know, right. And, and the fact that they made Captain America's costume a little more realistic, that's fine. But they still have the costume, and they've embraced it to some extent. Right, and I'm good with that. I agree. You know, I, I when I, I I have no idea. I trust Marvel, so I expect it to be good. But I have no idea what to expect out of Doctor Strange. But I like that when I saw the trailer, he's got the huge red cape with the markings on it and everything, mm-hmm. and and he looks like Doctor Strange. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look like okay. We're just going to make him, you know, a regular guy. Well, thank God he doesn't look like that god-awful TV movie that they did back in when was at the 70s or whatever. That was, <laughs> I don't know what, what look they were going for there, but he wasn't even recognizable as Doctor Strange. Yeah, I'm not sure what they were thinking then. <laughs> All right, I think we've we've gone a little on, on comic news now. We can do a book. Cool. So we, we just have one book for you today, and then we're going to read a little email. But in the meantime... I'm going off off the normal reservation, not a Marvel, not a DC, but from Atlas Comics. And uh, we've had a couple of Atlas Comics on before, but I don't think you and I were on together for any of them. But Atlas was an upstart company in the mid-90s, and uh, Stan Lee's brother, Larry Lieber, was one of the big guys in that. And they they, Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's the the editor on this uh, particular book, in fact. Um, He... They they had... uh, Lord away, I think I'm trying to remember the exact thing. It's one of one of the former principals of Marvel Comics who had sold it off. I think Martin Goodman. I think it was him that he started up this company to compete with Marvel after he sold it off, and he was kind of paying top dollar to, to bring over the talent. And he had a lot of big names. And in this particular one, the the writer is Gary Friedrich, the art is by Pablo Marcus, and uh, you know it's it's it, it's kind of an example of what they were doing at that time. So my book was Iron Jaw number four from July of 1975, which went for all of 25 cents. And this was kind of Atlas's, Atlas Comics' uh, version of Conan the Barbarian. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Have we not done an issue of Iron Jaw before? 
I know I've had this book. <laughs> I've had this book in the queue for us to do a couple of times in the past. And for reasons that I couldn't even tell you, we, we've pulled it and not done it before. We did. I know we did an issue of The Brute. And we did an issue of, I think it was Tarantula, something like that, that Luke Giaconetti brought one time. Right. I thought we had done, like, Iron John number one. I don't think we did, but it's possible. Okay. You know, I I remember a lot of the books we did, but not every single one. Right, yeah, me either. It's possible. Anyway, the the cover is by Pablo Marcos, and it has a close-up of the face of Iron Jaw, who, as I said, is like Conan, only with, uh, well, an Iron Jaw. Uh, in the foreground, he's shown before his face was mutilated, tied to a tree and being threatened by a bunch of pirate-looking dudes. The story is titled, And Who Will Forge a Jaw of Iron? And as I said, it's written by Gary Friedrich, the artist by Pablo Marcus, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, and edited by Larry Lieber. The story opens with Iron Jaw using his metal mandible to eat a raw, raw quail. He's all melancholy, and you can pretty much hear the flashback harp music as he thinks back to when he was little more than a peaceful, contented minstrel, living amongst a band of thieves. But that all went to shit when the thieves turned on him and tied him up to a tree. The bottom line is that the thieves turned on him out of jealousy. They didn't like that he was the leader's favorite and that all the chicks dug him. And so, as in all such cases, the punishment has to fit the crime. So for the crime of being likable, they sliced off the jaw right off his face with a white-hot sword. They left him tied to the tree to bleed out, and surprisingly enough, he was still conscious, enough to think about how if the gods allow him to survive, he would hunt down those men and kill them. Shortly after that, a hunchback and a woman in a chainmail bikini race to the scene and take the minstrel to Sauron the Sorceress. And uh, as far as she's concerned, if you watch Game of Thrones, think Melisandre. At this point, the flashback is interrupted by a giant lizard dragon thing that attacks Iron Jaw. It attacks using its tongue to lash out, so Iron Jaw throws his cape, which for reasons that confuse me, falls to the ground and makes a loud noise. So when the creature's tongue lashes towards the cape, Iron Jaw uses his sword to sever it. He follows that by throwing his sword into the creature's chest and killing it. So it's tongue dinner for Iron Jaw. Mm-mm-mm. Good Full of tongue, he leans back and resumes his <laughs> flashback. So the minstrel is taken to an old hag sorceress, again, think Melisandre, and the hot chick in the uh, chainmail bikini gives her a sack of coins to work magic and save him. The uh, sorceress makes a magic potion that she then administers and does some kind of a forbidden ritual, ritual which de-ages herself and makes her hot too. Then she gets some sort of ominous message about how she's abused her power and blah, 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 blah. She wraps up the minstrel's face in bandages with some kind of a potion, and that starts the healing process. Days later, he awakes, and the new hot girl is wearing his old rags as a bikini. And she explains to him that she's been caring for him, and now she loves him, because he was sleeping there, and of course you fall in love with anybody who sleeps there. Eventually, he walks off on his own and removes the bandages, but's horrified when he sees reflection in some water. He runs off screaming like a little schoolgirl. Of course, how he's screaming with no jaw, I'm not sure. And he's seen by two of the thieves that had attacked him. They follow him into the co- into the cave, but are frozen by a spell from the witchy woman. She returns with a surprise for him, a jaw of iron. She gives him a sleep potion and then has it attached to him. When he wakes up, he has her release the two thieves, and he kills one and lets the other flee to warn the other people that he's coming. The sorceress vows to teach him the ways of the warrior and declares her love for him. Back in the present day, Iron Jaw lays back and muses about being on the path of vengeance, and that is the end of our issue. 
Now, I had this when it was brand new. I had bought it for a quarter and I read it. And I remember I, I was not much of a sword and sorcery guy. And I think I may have had issues before this one, but this is the one that I actually remember reading several times. And at, you know, 12 years old, this was pretty cool stuff, I thought. Uh, I really liked it then. It seems a little overly simplistic now reading it through, but I really enjoyed it back then. And there is a little, a little bit of nostalgia that comes with it that just makes me kind of overlook some of the story weaknesses. But I'm curious, I assume this is the first time you've ever seen this one. This particular issue, yeah. You you have do have some familiarity with Iandra? Well, like I say, I'm 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 it's really nagging my my memory that I I'm almost positive at some point somebody brought an issue of this to the table. I, I'm pretty sure it was issue one, but I, I could be wrong about that. But it it feels familiar to me. Um, but that said, I'm with you. I'm not a sword and sorcery guy by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, this not being, uh, you know, one of my uh, my native genres, so to speak, um, not sure exactly how to feel about it. I mean, the the art's pretty. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not a detractor of Pablo Marcus, but he's not one of my favorites either. But in this particular case, I, I think the art's pretty good. At least it seems to fit this genre, which, again, you know, I, I'm not I'm not huge on. But uh, one of the things that really strikes me is is the women. I mean, the women look really good. And I can't help but think that that had to be a draw of these types of things. You know, this this particular genre and these types of books is the women because frequently this is exactly how they're drawn, you know, with a with a metal bikini or a real skimpy, sexy outfit or sometimes uh, you know, as with the the sorceress where she de-ages you and just outright naked. Now, you know, they're not showing you. Yeah, yeah, she does. But I mean, you know, they're not showing you anything, but it was that titillation factor. Because I can remember uh, when I was a kid, some of the earliest collections uh, that I bought contained issues of uh, Savage Savage Sword of Conan. And I kept them despite the fact that I don't give a rat's ass about Conan. I kept them because they had titties in them, you know, and that was at a time when you didn't see that in regular comics. But those were the oversized black and white magazines that Marvel was putting out for an older audience. And so sometimes you would see stuff like that. So I I can't help but think that that must have been intentional that that they, you know, look at like, say, for example, Mike Grell's uh, Warlord. I mean, that one chick in Warlord is, for all intents and purposes, naked through the whole series. I, I don't know what her name is. I think it. I think she's his daughter. I think. I'm not sure. But, you know, there, there's the one. Anybody that, that is even passingly familiar with the title will, will know which one I'm talking about. But she basi- basically wears like a, a skimpy uh, bikini made of fur. And, you know, it's real easy to let your imagination run with that, you know, and kind of fill in the blanks, so to speak. So, yeah, I think with a lot of these type things where they're so scantily dressed, I think the artist draws them naked and then just kind of adds the outfit onto it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, my, actually my biggest question about this really doesn't pertain all that much to the story itself or the art or, or characters or anything is just simply the fact of, okay, he has kind of sort of like a like a Jonah Hex thing going where, you know, this has been done to him. He's been 
kind of sort of branded in a way, although I'm sure they intended for this to kill him. Which, as opposed if, to if being, this were real, it would have. Yeah, you would think so. You, you wouldn't survive more than a few minutes after having your jaw removed that way, bleeding right. out. So they don't, I mean, they show the guy with the, with the white hot sword, like making the initial incision and he's screaming and everything, but it's done at such an angle where you don't really see like any gore or anything. And then everything else is him hanging his head and we're just, we don't see it, but we've basically, we've been told because the one guy says, uh, uh, he has had his chin and lower jaw sliced from his head. Okay, taking them literally for that, later on in the book, we see you know he's presented with the iron jaw, which it looks like it's basically like kind of fitted over his over his ears and you know around his neck and everything. So okay, you know I, I will I will. No, give they it. they actually say that they specifically had to put iron pins into his upper jaw. Oh, okay. She puts him to sleep so that he won't feel it. So but the girl... It, now, there are pins in there. The girl in the green bikini, this is the DH sorceress, right? Yes. So she's comforting him after it's been installed, and she says, that's it, feel the iron jaw, become accustomed to it, for it has been permanently forged to your own existing bone structure. Okay, I can buy all of that. But what I want to know is, how can he then speak? Because your tongue is part of your lower jaw. You, so you know this, how he could speak? Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I want to know. He's got an iron tongue. <laughs> is this? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would. I you know, it, it's no sillier than anything else in this. So I would buy that if she just says, you know, become accustomed to your new iron tongue. But they don't ever address the issue of his tongue. So, you know. Just the fact that she is a sorceress, he was spared through sorcery and everything, is this part of the spell that he can speak through sorcery. I'd, I'd buy that, too. I just want to know how he That's what you have to go talk. with, honestly. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. You just have, have to roll with it. But it would have been nice to get some sort of a, even if it was a you know half-assed comic book science or, or sorcery answer, I would, I would at least like that much, you know, that, that much of a bone thrown to me to, you know, how is he speaking? But I'm, uh, I'm not seeing that here now. It, in fairness, that may be addressed in this. Um, I, I'm just kind of following along with you. I have not read the issue myself. So and maybe that was addressed either in this or in, you know, one of the prior three issues. I don't know. I, not that I'm aware of. I don't think it ever was, you know, she just puts it on there and says, you're going to have to learn to speak or whatever. And then he, you know, a couple of seconds later, he's got words coming out. Right. <laughs> Works pretty damn good. Yeah. But that said, I mean, it, it's... If only it's, once there was a shot where he said, oh, you can. That would have made it for me. <laughs> or if he, he speaks in the high squeaky voice like the like the dogs in, uh, what was that, Up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, where they have the... Because he... he Maybe he has like a voice modulator type of thing. Maybe he talks like uh, one of those people, the, the smokers that get their get their larynx removed or whatever. I don't know. I just wonder what his voice sounds like now that he has a, an iron jaw. But beyond that, I don't know that I've got a hell of a lot on it. Um, it is pretty, though. Well, see, with the art, I think it's got its pretty moments. And I think, you know, you hit on it that he that he draws the women very well. I think he draws actually the. Uh, I think he draws the sword and sorcery stuff well. I think you know the, the the villains and and even Iron Joy himself are, are drawn well, but I do see what appears to be like some poor perspective on a couple of shots. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the shots really appear to have a very two-dimensional look to them. And that's that's what I would say is the weakness overall. Right. Uh, that and, and really not much going in the backgrounds to speak of. That's true. Uh, but on a whole, I think the art is, is pretty good, those weaknesses yeah. aside. But I, I would say th- those are the weaknesses that came out to me. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll rate the art soon. And, and on a whole, I, I would give it fairly high grades. The monster's cool. The giant Hilo monster or whatever it is. The, the monster's yeah. actually pretty cool. It's, it's funny, though. You know, he, he defeats it fairly easy as far as this book goes. I mean, it's like a one and a half page battle. Right. And, and then when, when he defeats it, it's like, uh, what does he say? Uh, surely this was the ultimate test of my medal as a warrior. Really? Because if that's it, you know, I'm not buying the next issue. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny, you know, that this, this beast w- was specifically attacking with its tongue. Then, then he, t- he takes off his cape and he throws it and it like slams to the ground. I don't know what exactly... <laughs> Scrunch. Yeah, I don't know exactly what he's got in the cape that that happened, but that confused it and it goes after that and he snaps, he takes off the tongue. I'm thinking, you know, that would be great in any Jewish deli. <laughs> Put that on a sandwich and you're done. Ooh, I just noticed that the the panel after the, the monster retracts its tongue into its mouth, it's kind of reaching out to him with his with its paw, almost like pleading towards him. And there's blood squirting out the end of its severed tongue. That's nasty. Yeah, yeah. It looks kind of like a sad monster at that point. <laughs> and and then the whole thing with the, the, the old hag, when she... I, I didn't really know where they were going with having her, you know, re-youth... Re, revitalize herself i was trying to say euthanize which would not be the right word right Um, but then it says something to the effect of uh she's violated sacred laws so therefore she no longer possesses immortality but if she was immortal why was she old i guess maybe she just couldn't die before now she can die but you know she she couldn't die but she would get old now she's young but she can die i don't know i don't know oh yeah i don't know where they're going with that so what? when is this supposed to be, when and where is this supposed to be taking place? This is actually post-apocalyptic Earth. Okay. This is not, you know, in the distant past. This is actually okay. in the future. That makes sense, because uh, I'm See, looking at how they're dressed and everything, and, and uh, Iron Jaw himself, uh, you know, we're seeing the modern him has kind of, been, like, basically cut off shorts, cut off jeans, and then the flashbacks of him, you know, he's got, uh, you know, jeans and a, and a big old belt and everything. And I'm just kind of a disco this. outfit. Yeah, I'm just like, what? what well, the, the, fir- the very first panel in the, uh, the, you know, the balloon above it, it says, uh, a rain-drenched warrior eats a paltry meal of raw quail beneath what little shelter the once great forests of North America have to offer. Ah. So did he ever do the, uh, the thing where he'd be traveling across the land and he would find like you know a moss covered uh statue of liberty Memorial or statue of liberty or something like that did that ever happen in this not that i'm aware of because hmm. that was one of those things i always loved about stuff like this you know like say logan's run for example that's one of my some of my favorite scenes of, of something like logan's run is when they would come across you know the uh the things that you could identify you know, today, but, you know, to them in the far, far future, it was nothing but, you know, mysterious ruins of a lost civilization kind of thing. And, you know, we'd be looking at, like, Mount Rushmore or, or something. I think we probably would stuff. have gotten into some of that if the series had run long enough. Right. I think it only ran, I, I'm 
guessing here, six or seven issues. So yeah, I, I know think, most of the Atlas ones did not last. If very, it even ran that. I'm going to try and yeah. look it up quickly. I, I, I could be wrong, but I didn't think many of them ran uh, more than like four. So you, yeah. you may be right. This may be the final issue for all I know. Yeah, it could be. Some of them only had like one or two issues. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot of, uh, of Atlas. I do have a few. Um, the only one that, that ever really stood out to me, though, was, uh, what was the name of it? Demon Hunter? Oh, that's, yeah, yeah uh, Rich Buckler's creation. Yeah. yeah, and I like that one, but that one's only the one issue. I, and... I have a, a handful of these, but I do remember them fondly, so I, w- I would love to get some some more of these old back ones. And I think when you can find them, you can get them pretty cheap. These are like 25 cent bin five. Right. But I just don't find that many of them. It looks like there's only four issues, actually. So this was the last one. Yeah. Huh. Shame. Yeah, I think there was. I think there were some decent concepts that they, you know, they weren't allowed to go too far with. And I think there was also, uh, we've talked about this on prior ish, uh, episodes where Atlas Comics was a little bit of a rudderless ship, or maybe it had too much rudder, depending on how you want to think about it, because right. they would start a series and they would just immediately shift direction on where they were going with it. So that, that you didn't have any kind of consistency because I don't think they knew what, what the audience wanted and they would just do wholesale changes. Uh, you know, we, we had covered issue one of the series Brute and they went back and forth on that with between whether it was like a horror comic or a superhero comic. And he was kind of the Atlas version of the Hulk. Right. But they didn't, you know, they didn't know what to do with him. And I think that also went about four issues or so. Uh, let's see if I can find that one i'm looking here to see were there any atlas comics in the very next month or were they oh here we go demon hunter was the next month demon hunter number one which again only lasted one issue yeah yeah it was it was a real flash in the pan but the funny thing is when i was first getting into comics you know and starting to collect them i can remember atlas comics being everywhere and I don't think I realized at the time that they were a flash in the pan that was basically a, a, a failed experiment or a failed company. And so it's funny because that makes them now kind of the, you know, take your pick of the of the little upstart things that happened in like, say, like the late 80s and into the, you know, like early to mid 90s. Those companies that, that popped up had their little time and then quickly disappeared and started to pollute, you know, all the back issue box, you know, the cheapy bins, the 25 cent boxes and stuff like that, that we would see, you know, even to this very day, you see a lot of that stuff that, that was kind of the, you know, Atlas was kind of the precursor to that. And, but not really, I didn't realize that at the time. And what's funny is now I, I have no, you know, fondness for them. I have no sentimentality for them, but at the same rate, it's always one of those things where now I kind of wish that I, I scooped them up just, if nothing else, just as a, as a curiosity, you know, just something to have. Cause I know a lot of these, as I'm looking at the covers here, I had a lot of, or I've not had, but saw a lot of these around, but just, you know, passed on them because they weren't, they weren't Marvel and they weren't DC, so I wasn't really interested, you know? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And I had a fair number of them, and I don't know, I probably ditched them at some point because, you know, it was a failed experiment and I didn't, you know, there was nothing more to follow. But they have a, a nostalgic quality 
quality to me. So when I see them in the 25 cent bins, I always pick up whatever I see. So I have, I don't know, maybe five different issues or so at this point. Right. And, you know, who knows? Maybe, it, uh, you know, maybe at some of these cheap, cheap bins that I jump into, I'll find some more of them. I wonder, I wonder when they were officially gone, though. Because I'm I would looking, say sometime in 1975. Yeah, I'm looking at June 75, and just on a quick glance, I'm only seeing one by that point. So I, I, I think it's a safe bet to say that at least by the end of the year that they were gone. Well, there's, there's a, uh, an Excel spreadsheet on the Atlas Archives uh, webpage, oh, okay. and, and no series went beyond four issues. Yeah, see, that's what I thought, and... I don't know where I read it, probably like Back Issue Magazine or something, but I thought I had read that at some point that, that no series went past four. But yeah, I'm looking here at whatever month this is, July, I think, and I'm not seeing I'm not seeing anything. Are you on mics? Yeah. Yeah, so that that should be a good uh you know, good avenue to see if, if there's anything in August or not. Yeah. Um you know, again, just a quick glance here, but for what I'm seeing, I'm I don't see anything. So it looked like yeah, by uh, by late summer, early fall, that they'd uh, they'd already fizzled. It's a shame. Well, it's just it's a shame that like either Marvel or DC didn't pick up these characters because maybe maybe they could have done something with them. I know that Demon Hunter mutated into another character. It was yeah, he was on the Defenders. Demon Slayer, I think. I think that's right. Yeah. But beyond that, I saw something. I think it was on Facebook. I saw something where somebody posted. Then he kind of brought the character back on on his own creator own series. So I don't know if he retained the rights to it or if he just changed it slightly so that he could get away with keeping it. Well, that was the other thing I was wondering about all this is that where where are these books, characters, all this? Where you know, legally speaking, where is all this stuff? Is it is it in limbo? Is it public domain? Is it creator owned? You know what I mean? How, whose property? You know, for, so for example, if you and I sat down and decided that we were going to do the further adventures of Iron Jaw, is that legit? Could we do that, or is you know, is it the property of uh, Gary Friedrich and uh, and Pablo Marcus, for example? I, I just I wonder, you know, legally how that whole type of thing would shake out. You know, are they abandoned characters or? Well, I, at some point, I'm, I'm again, I'm on the Atlas Archives web page. At some point. They did try and revive them. Uh, I'm seeing this. There's a page here, you know, on, on the web page. There's a link here. It says, after th- a 35-year hiatus, Atlas Comics has returned. Click on one of the above logos or one of the logos for more information about a specific title. And they had revived the characters of Wolf, who's also a barbarian character, Phoenix, the Grim Ghost, and then they had a, a book called Atlas Original Retail Sampler. So it looked like they were trying to revive it 35 years from 1970 would be 2010, or from 1975 rather, 2010. Right. I guess they tried to revive it, uh, but it doesn't look. You know, I, I guess it didn't go anywhere. So I don't know. As far as licenses, I'm guessing there's somebody who still owns them. I doubt it's public domain, but whether they're doing anything with those licenses seems to be the answer. Seems to be no. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what do we got? Grades. Yeah, let's let's grade this thing. Uh, cover is pretty well drawn. You have a scene right from in the book with kind of the Atlas, uh, the Iron Jaw head above it, 
you know, kind of letting you know it's a flashback, letting you know it's him on the wooden tree cross thing. Uh, I would say I'd, it's a little busy, but it was enough to attract me to it at the time it came out and get me to buy it. I'm going to say a B minus. Solid, but not great. And the interior art, I talked about what I saw as the weaknesses, but overall I think it's pretty good. I enjoyed, you know, it's easy to follow. The story flows along nicely. You know who all the characters are. They seem to have their own distinctive looks, you know, at least the main characters. So I'm going to say the same thing, a B- minus on the interior art. Story is a little bit, again, it's easy to follow. I enjoyed reading it as a kid. I think I read it several times back then. And it does force you to just kind of go with it and just accept, oh, yeah, this could happen. I could take this guy whose jaw was just cut off by a white hot blade, throw him face down in the back of a wagon and and transport him somewhere. And he's not going to die in a matter of minutes. Um, Things like that that are a little silly. But overall, still, it was an enjoyable story. I liked it then. I kind of like it now. I'm going to go B minus across the board and give it a B minus on the story as well. So B minus, B minus, B minus, that averages out to, I guess, a B minus. Okay. Um, I like the cover. I think the, the cover is really cool, with the exception of the the floaty head of Iron Jaw above the flashback body of Iron Jaw on the, uh, on the crucifix or whatever it's supposed to be, you know, the, on the tree. Um, it, it, so it's, it's kind of a strange layout it's kind of a strange design for the thing plus it's a little busy with the pirates that are about to do this to him because there's just a lot of stuff going on so the guy the pirate looking dude on the far left the the red-haired one with his mouth open i think he's meant to be holding a sword in his hand so he is behind the next pirate looking dude there it's more in the foreground but because of the way it's drawn and and it's not made clear that that the first guy is holding a sword, it looks like the second guy actually has like a, a like a knife sticking out of his forehead. It almost looks like a unicorn or something. It's just really weird looking. Um, so the perspective is just a little bit funny in that uh, in that aspect. But still, I mean, it, it is a very dynamic cover. So I think I think B. Uh, is a is a fair grade for that i I think it's pretty dynamic and it's good looking stuff uh the interior art's really nice it reminds me of somebody but i'm not quite putting my finger on it it's it's a combination of a of a number of different styles and a number of different artists from right around this time there's a little bit of you know like mike grell in there a um, little bit of Val Merrick, just some different artists that were doing, you know, somewhat similar things at the same time, uh, you know, same general era as this. Not really my genre, and some of the coloring and and such give it kind of a muddy, dark look that I I don't really care for. Um, I know that uh, Alfredo Alcala would would frequently draw this type of way too, and, and I I never liked. Uh, a lot of the inks that would go over his work, especially when he either inked himself or even when he inked other people, it always had kind of a greasy feel to it is the best way I could describe it. And this has that in certain aspects as well. It's not as clean as, uh, as I like uh, my comic art to be, but when it works, it works. I mean, it, it is dynamic and uh, iron jaw himself, you know, is a, is a pretty cut and dynamic figure. So 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's good. The anatomy is good in it, I think. Although, as you say, there are a couple of just weird perspective shots that at first glance might look like it's wonky anatomy. I, I don't think it is, though. I think it's just wonky perspective. So the interior are, um, I think I would go a B on it as well. I, I really like it. I think with a little more polish and some work on those uh, wackier perspectives, I, I think you know, you've got some really dynamic stuff. Unfortunately... If my memory's correct, you know, for me personally with Pablo Marcus, I, I don't think that he ever does quite get to that level. In a lot of ways, I think he, he kind of slides the other way for me uh, on stuff that I would see from him later beyond this. Um, and then the story, I don't really feel comfortable grading the story only because I didn't read it. I just kind of followed along with the synopsis. So I got a flavor for the story, which was, you know, perfectly acceptable. But having not read it myself, I, I, I don't know if I'd be fair, you know, to judge it. So I'm just going to go strictly on the art. So just basic, you know, strictly on the art cover and story, uh, I'm going to go, you know, just an average B. Um, you know, it's, it's an okay book for what it is. I thought it was pretty cool. All right. Can't argue with any of that. <laughs> okay. I want to. I want to argue, but I can't think of anything. <laughs> Why don't we read a couple of emails? Let's do that. You got yours open? Uh, somewhere here. Yes, here we go. Okay, I'll, I'll do the first, and then uh, we'll work from there. We'll see how many we squeeze in. Got a lot of email, and thank you, everybody, for uh, yes for, for sending us your comments. We we appreciate them, and you know we'll try and get them all in little by little. But you know we don't want to don't want to do too many email only shows because I know some people love them, but some people don't. So first one is from our friend Russell Bragg, and it's titled "Back to the Bins Number Two Thirty Five: King Size Bins, Giant Size Fun." Hi guys, great episode as always. I've become a big Kyle Benning fan. I've always enjoyed Dollar Comics and Treasury editions and really love each episode he puts out about them. I'm also enjoying his new Superman slash Captain Marvel show. I just hope he isn't running himself too thin. Anyway, to the episode. Glad Scott was there again. It's becoming a habit, huh? I was having a little bit of sound issues throughout the episode. That's my fault, guys, sorry. Everyone but Scott seemed to echo a bit. It didn't take away from the episode, however. If you count archive editions, I at least had the original Batman story from Batman number 35. I don't think I knew how the dinosaur got to the Batcave and never really thought about it. I was always more intrigued with the, about, with the giant penny. I forgot how it came up, but you were talking about the NFL teams and the almost impossibility of beating a team three times in one season. I looked it up, as I am wont to do to help you guys out occasionally, and it happened more than I thought. Since the merger in 1970, it happened 13 times, and my Pittsburgh Steelers have done it three times, the most of any NFL franchise. I know, I know, Scott's probably sitting there saying, I hate baseball. <laughs> I was just about to say it. <laughs> oh, well, that's my two cents worth for this episode. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. Thanks, Russell. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, and <laughs> thanks for looking up that trivia, the sports trivia for us. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I like how he said that uh, everybody but me seemed to echo. So he was able to hear me pretty clearly. And that's the important thing, really. I did my best to try and eliminate the uh, the echo. But with the mixed success, there were points when you didn't hear an echo. That was because I was successful. There's points when you did. That's because I wasn't. <laughs> but that was because I was having trouble with my recorder. And I ended up having to work with a different recording. And... You know, it, it it got messed up, but I would rather present a slightly 
damaged audio format than just shit can an episode that we had a good discussion, especially with with a guest, you know, because, you know, we don't get there's no guest that's on all the time. So, you know, I don't like to lose that stuff. Right. And uh, I hope I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. That's it. All right. Our next one is entitled Very Funny Guys. And it says very funny. Paul and Dr. Bill. Sorry for the dorky parademon question. Do you remember what the dorky parademon yeah, question He, he asked a parademon question, and Bill's, Bill, Bill turned it into a joke because we, we were running late in the episode. So when the question came up, Bill said, oh, let me tell you all about it. And then I played the closing music. <laughs> so he never really did explain anything in answer to Socrates' question. And your question was not dopey or dorky at all. It's just, you know, we, we had a little fun with you, Socrates. <laughs> he says, it popped into my head when I was making a planner for my wife. Is that a euphemism? I hope so. Says, Socrates and his wife's sake. <laughs> Just keep up the good work. And here's another dorky question. When the Flash vibrates through stuff, how come he doesn't vibrate through his super suit also? Well, I can, I can only think that he, because he's wearing it, he managed to make it vibrate with him. The same reason the suit doesn't burn from friction when he runs. Comics Code Authority is the reason why he doesn't vibrate out of his super suit. Um, that's, that is a good question, though. I wonder if he's able to somehow like molecularly bond the suit to him. So the suit vibrates along with him and he doesn't, you know what I mean? Like he's selective about what he passes through and what doesn't pass through or I don't know. Does that make any sort of bullshit comic-y science sense? It makes as much sense as any other bullshit comic-y science <laughs> So that's a nice short email. It says, best regards, that was from Socrates S. Alvarez the third. So because that was so short, I will go ahead and I will tackle another one here. Oh, look at you. Nice. Good job. Let's see. The next one is entitled, how does he move, uh, how does he move those wonderful toys? Back, uh, back to the bins, number 235. This must be about that, uh, that question about the dinosaur. So this is from Chris Franklin. He says, hey, Paul, Bill, and Scott. And Kyle, although I don't think he's here unless his garage door got locked. <laughs> he says, glad to hear that Batman Chronicles number eight was put to good use on the show. That's right. He gave me that issue. He says, it was great to meet you, Scott, and I'm sorry we didn't get to hang out more. Me too. He says, maybe next time. We'll definitely be back to Disney World in a few years. Well, I'll be there. He says, I'm also glad you guys uh, all liked Nolan's Batman art for the most part. I'm a huge fan of his run on Detective Comics with Chuck Dixon. Now, that would be Graham. Is that his name? Graham Nolan? Uh, That sounds good. I think that's his name. He says, I know Dixon's run on uh, Robin, Nightwing, and Birds of Prey get a lot of praise, but his tech run was just as good. That's short for Detective Comics. It says, perhaps the last, quote-unquote, classic-style adventures of Batman and Robin in comics. Maybe if you guys have me back on the show, I'll bring one to share. I'd love to have you back on, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would like that. Nice to hear Kyle stop by. Since I've podcasted with both Paul and Kyle, he was on a Supermates episode, and Matt Scott in person, the only one in the crew that I haven't met was Dr. Bill. I'll keep a warm two-liter of soda pop... uh, Ale 81? What is that? Oh, I think Mountain Dew meets Moonshine. Handy for him if we ever get to hang out. As for how the T-Rex got moved into the Batcave, I assume Alfred had it disassembled and shipped in separate crates. Then he reassembled it in the Batcave. Hmm. I don't know. It's not so easy. It's not like like an Aurora model. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, still, you know, Alfred's a, you know, he's a, he's he's an older gentleman um, from depending on what continuity they may be going from. It's been around since you know, World War Two, so I don't know. You know, still, it begs the question. How, how is he getting that thing down into the Batcave and, and all put together and all that, presumably by himself? I think we're just not meant to think about these things. And presumably, this would be early enough in Batman's career that I, I wouldn't think that he was necessarily chums with Superman yet. So I think that rules out Superman having lent a hand to uh, to install the, the dinosaur. So, yeah, I think we're still left with a, with a conundrum there. Exactly how did that dinosaur wind up in the Batcave? says, now the giant penny, that's another matter. Uh, speaking of which, Nolan did retell its origin story in Batman Chronicles number 19. Hmm, I wonder if I have that. This is great show as always, fellas. And again, that's from Chris Franklin, co-host of the Supermates podcast. Thank you, Chris. All right. Our next email is titled Not So Civil War, and it's also from Chris. It's, hey, Paul, Dr. Bill, and Scott. Great episode on Cap Iron Man battles. Before we get into that, Scott, the Batman album must be this one. And Chris included a link to Power Records blogspot.com, and there's a Batman Power Record that's on the page that he put the link. I would promise you that I would put it on the... Uh, the, the web page when I load this episode, but I expect that I will forget. So uh, don't hold me to that. I still that have my childhood. Looks, co- hmm? That looks, yeah, that looks familiar. I, yeah, I think this is it because I'm I'm looking here and you've got Gorilla City. I remember hearing that as it's just it's weird because the the front cover looks very familiar. The back cover, not at all. So that's that's weird. But these the names of these stories sound familiar too. So yeah, that may be it. Cool. It's cool that he found the one you're talking about. I still have my childhood copy, and it's my favorite power record. Robin Meets Man Bat is the reason I got into podcasting, believe it or not. I wrote into Rob Kelly about loving it at Power Records blog above, and when he was going to feature it on an episode of Fire and Water, he asked me to join him. It was my first podcasting gig, and I got hooked. Later, I became the permanent co-host of Power Records, and Rob and I have covered the other Batman story you mentioned, Mystery of the Scarecrow Corpse, as well. And yes, the accents in the pub are almost incomprehensible. Power Records produced comic versions of each story. The Man Bat one in a single comic with a 45 record, drawn by Neil Adams, and the Sherlock Holmes one with art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. This one was featured in a two-story LP complete with oversized comic. The other story is Gorilla City, drawn by JLGL. But on to Civil War. Thanks for covering these comics. I was buying Iron Man for a bit in this era, so the Silver Centurion is a standout for me as well. I was regularly buying Cap as well, as regular as newsstand distribution would allow, and I somehow missed this one. It does seem hard to imagine Cap would give in so easily, but his heart probably wasn't in it really. The resolution issue you mentioned, Cap 401, was one issue before the infamous Man-Wolf saga. I had dropped the book a few months prior to this. Despite some of the later stories, Grunewald's Cap run is still one of my favorites. My favorite period is probably right after Cap gets his title back, while Dwyer is still on the book. The Bloodstone saga was great, and that's where they introduced Crossbones, who of course shows up very briefly in Civil War. Great episode. I'm sure you guys have seen Civil War multiple times by the time you read this, but I thought it was fantastic. 
might be my number two Marvel film behind Cap First Avenger, Chris. Well, by the time this episode comes up, I, uh, I expect that you're going to uh, hear our commentary to Civil War. Still with me, Scott? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were waiting for me to, to, to chime in on that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the timetable is for releasing that. But yes, we, we have recorded a commentary. Um, I think that's going to be a hoot because we had the full uh, New York crew for that one. So that, that, that should be a very interesting commentary. This comic that he referred to, so it was the the book and record set that has just Gorilla City and Mystery of the Scarecrow Corpse. I think this might be the one that I had because the cover looks really familiar. Plus it came with the comic. And I think the one I had, I'd forgotten this, but I think the one I had had the comic only because the part where Matches Malone, I, I think, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I think this is Batman disguising as Matches Malone. Um, I'm looking here to see if they ever call him by name, and I'm not seeing that. But anyway, it has the part I was talking about where he throws all the darts at one time, and it says, uh, you know, six bullseyes in one throw, which is the part that, for some reason, that part always stood out in my memory because the woman's accent is so cheesy in that part. But yeah, this this looks familiar. I, I think this must be the one that I had when I was a kid. Beautiful art. Really, really nice. Although the, the printing uh, process, unfortunately, was not not kind to the coloring. The color looks just way too bright for a Batman story. It's like day glow colors. Well, that's one of the things about Batman stories, though. They, they've gone through so many different genres with Batman. And I think it's because the character does adapt well to different types of genres. Right. Uh, that some are bright and shiny and some are you know downright dark and dreary no i it's not not so much that you know his world is is bright or whatever what i mean is just because of what they were printing on it it wasn't comic book stock oh okay you know what i mean it was it was whatever that paper was that they used to put in those book and record sets so because it was more of a um God, I'm trying to think of how to describe it, but it just it wasn't newsprint. You know what I mean? It wasn't comic book stock, so it was more of a of a tougher, sturdier, bright white paper that comic book printing process applied to that stock of paper gave you something that looks like this. If you're looking, I'm, you may not be looking at the same thing I'm looking at. I'll send you the link here, but it's basically if you go to the power records blog and look at the one that says Batman 1976. Um, and it's the one that has the cover. I believe this is Neil Adams of Batman. He looks very surprised as he's looking at on the left, you have Sherlock Holmes lighting his pipe. And on the right, you have a, a gorilla from gorilla city. That book and record set has, uh, the, the illustrated stories, you know, the uh, the comic art version of the of the stories that are on the record. You've got Gorilla City and then you've got um, the uh, mystery of the Scarecrow Corpse. And each of these are um, illustrated by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And it's just, I mean, gorgeous. But the coloring is, is just way too... Um, and really, Dayglow is the best way to describe it. It's It, it just doesn't... It doesn't look good on that stock of paper. I have a, that's a Superman one that's printed like this. It's a Superman origin story that it's 
beautifully illustrated, I want to say by Neil Adams, but I could be wrong on that. And it has the same problem because of that paper stock. The, the color just looks odd somehow. It, it's, it's hard to define, but it, it just it, it looks wrong because it, it was intended for the, the comic paper that they were using at the time. If it was printed on comic paper, it looked perfectly fine. But because it's on this bright white, it just looks funny. Remember like when they first went to Baxter paper mm-hmm. and a lot of those early Baxter issues had the same problem they just looked funny somehow they were a little too bright and a little too um like like it was like the the color was like ultra sharp and so it just kind of looked bizarre to us before until they really started to refine the color process for that quality of paper that that's what this looks like hell for all i know that that might be what this paper is this might be baxter i really don't know but it had the same problem i remember early issues of um of the Wolfman Perez Titans on Baxter paper had the, that issue. You know, that yeah, same, same thing with the, uh, the, whatchamacallit, the Legion of Superheroes Legion. And, yeah. at the same time. Well, yeah. like you said, when they first went to, uh, to Baxter, yeah, they hadn't quite perfected it yet. Yeah. A number of those books did. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, Omega Man had the, had the same issue where it was just a little too, you know, bright's really the only way I can describe it. It's just a little too color saturated. It's like the colors popped too much. And so they had to start playing with the formula in order to get it looking more like what we traditionally think DC Comics look like, but on a higher quality of paper. And it, it took them a while to figure that out. But damn, this this really brings back memories just seeing the, uh, the artwork of these stories because I, man, I haven't I've seen this stuff in decades. It's, it's actually pretty cool. And if if memory serves, you know, the, the voice acting on these uh, generally wasn't too bad, you know, excusing, of course, the, the cheesy accents or what. Oh, are we ready for the next uh, next email? Hey, we might as well. In fact, uh, the next email is so short, I'm going to take this one too. Sure. You have to hook that easy. <laughs> the next one's also from Socrates, and it's titled Question. Good morning, guys. It's actually night, Socrates. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm working on putting together a GL run from dom- dollar sale bins. It's the Hal to Kyle run. I'm about eight issues from completing one to 75. Uh, I want to collect up to the Emerald Knight story before I start reading. I had 49 to 52, so I didn't have to buy those issues. And I haven't spent more than a dollar on any issue so far. What runs have you put together over the years issue by issue? Was the weight worth it? Best regards, Socrates S. Alvarez III. I would say my initial comic collecting mandate was I came into the hobby as a huge Spider-Man fan. And as I've said many times, my first issue was 131. I made the mistake of collecting backwards, starting from 131 and working my way back. Uh, Had I started, had I said, let me get the oldest issues possible... I would have been better off because they only got more expensive as time went on. So as I was getting the issues that weren't so expensive, the more expensive ones were increasing in price. But I eventually brought my issue back where I have a complete run from issue 48 on. And between issues 25 and 48, I probably have about 15 of those. So that was probably, like again, it was my first mandate when I started collecting that that was what I was going for. And it was probably the most satisfying of runs that I've put together. 
Uh, as you've heard on the show, you know, in the not too distant past, both Scott and I have completed our runs of Marvel Team Up, mm-hmm. and and series like that are fun to put together. But when it's when it's a labor of love like Spider Man was for me at that time, I think those are the ones that you you feel most satisfied when you, when you put together a significant run on them. Right. Gosh, this uh, I think this question actually that could be an episode by itself. It, yeah, I was just gonna say it could generate a really good episode uh, because I, I've done this a lot of times. Just off, purely off the top of my head, the two that instantly popped into my head with the question of what runs have you put together over the years, issue by issue, uh, actually a significant number of them, but the two that instantly popped in my head would be Rom Space Night, which I worked years to build that collection. It's only 75 issues, um, and then there's four annuals, so altogether 79 issues. And you wouldn't think that it would be that tough. And it wasn't that tough as far as price. Um, I could be wrong today, but at the time I was buying up those issues, ROM number one was still a cheap, you know, like it was like a dollar bin uh, fine, you know, a dollar at most. And I actually have several copies of number one just because I kept finding it in the cheap bins. But the problem was, is that with just about any collection that you're ever going to buy, picking it up in the back issue bins, especially if you're picking it up out of the cheap bins, there's always one goddamn issue that for some reason you just can't ever find. And Michael Bailey uh, had a theory a while back. It was, it was one of those like Murphy's law kind of things that just about the time that you're like, screw it. And you pay five bucks for that issue just to complete the collection. That's the time that you're going to find it in, in the 50 cent bin, like the very next time you look and it happened. That's happened to me. I, I can't tell you how many times. So you just have to be patient. But that one was really rewarding because I didn't pay more than a dollar for any issue I ever bought of that series. And then about, I'd say about a year or so ago, I finally sat down and and read the entire thing, having now collected the entire series. And damn, was it a good run. I was so pleased with that because it has happened to me before where I struggled and, and, you know, worked hard to complete an entire collection of something I always wanted to read finally got it and then I sat down and started reading it and you know for whatever reason maybe it just wasn't any good or it had a real rough spot or whatever I just didn't finish it so then it was like I I kind of felt like I wasted my time the other one that popped in my head was Jonah Hex Um, I have a complete collection of Jonah Hex and that's including you know ancillary uh, you know appearances in other books and everything but just Jonah Hex proper from his very first appearance in uh, All-Star Western number 10, all the way through um, the end of his original series, you know, Jonah Hex number 92. And then he actually had the series where he jumped into the post-apocalyptic future called Hex that lasted 18 issues. I have all that stuff. And it was a bitch. I mean, it, it took me a long time to collect all of them. I Thankfully, I didn't pay a lot of money for any particular issue. I think the only one that cost me a little bit of money at the time was, I can't remember the proper name of it, but it's it, it's become popularly known as the Jonah Hex Spectacular, but because that's what it says on the cover, but it's actually, I think, a DC special series, like number, I don't know, like 18 or something like that. That one I did pay a pretty penny for, but mostly because I was just impatient. I was just tired of not having it when I wanted it. So I finally just bit the bullet and bought it off eBay for a lot more than I should have spent money for it. But it was just, I was just impatient. I just wanted it. Um, But beyond that, 
um, most of those issues, I don't think I ever paid more than like $3 for. And some of them were really hard to find because Westerns just didn't have a big print run. And some of the issues just, I, I had to be really patient. I, I take that back. The only other, the other issue I did spend a little bit of money on was um, Hex's first appearance, which is all-star Western number 10. I think I ended up getting that um, a really sweet copy. I think I paid 10 bucks for it. Um, there was a, a guy at a, it was like one of those when they used to do, um, weekend shows like in, in shopping malls, they used to have like the antique shows and stuff like that. There was a guy that had a, a comic section and we struck up a conversation and, uh, just, you know, just through chit chatting and, you know, just being friendly to the guy and everything. I, I managed to knock him down on his asking price, which I forget how much he was asking, but it was significantly more than 10 bucks. And uh, and I knocked him down to ten bucks on it and got it. So that that was that was a personal feat for me because that was a book I really wanted and was not sure I was ever going to get just because that that book tends to price pretty high. And this is a really good copy of it. I it's been a while since I looked at it, so I can't tell you the exact condition, but I want to say it's very fine plus. So you know, ten bucks for a book like that's that's not bad. Um, but that, that was a very satisfying, uh, run to finally complete. And it's, I mean, it's a damn good read from start to finish if you like, you know, that genre. So that's a long winded uh, answer to your question. Nice short question, but long yeah. answers. The, the other thing I remember, like when I first started collecting, the thing I found, uh, kind of fun was, you know, like the stuff that I can get fairly quick gratification on. You know, you, you take a series that had a relatively short run, like, for example, uh, you know, from the 70s, uh, the Joker series, which I believe ran nine issues. Could be wrong. Give or take an issue. Ran something like that. So you can you would be able to fill it out, especially in the 70s when it wasn't all that old. You'd be able to fill that out fairly quickly. And, and you, you know, you feel that sense of accomplishment and, and resolution that, you know, you did it, you completed it. So that, that was also kind of fun for me as a young collector, was picking series that had short runs and trying to just fill them out quickly. Right. So just, just uh, another answer there. Let's <laughs> see. Let's see. We could probably squeeze in one or two more. All right. Uh, this next one is entitled, This Hand Truck is for Scott Snyder, This Rolling Bag is for Mike Mignola, and The Brings Truck Outside is for Alex Ross. <laughs> I'm interested where this one's going to go. So this one uh, starts off as pliers of the time stream. Hey, fellas, just now getting caught up on some of the last few episodes of Back to the Bins, including the Christmas in July, and then July is crossed out, and it says April episode. The discussion about Tampa Bay Comic Con and the guys who bring rolling carts full of books for guys to sign really stood out for me. Now, I fall into the category which Scott and uh, Paul described, where when I go to a show, I will bring a couple of meaningful or special books for a creator to sign, but mostly I want to get a chance to tell them that I enjoy their work and thank them for their efforts. I also try to think of a good question, uh, good question or two to ask them so it's not just a gushing fanboy thing. I think that's the way to go. But the stories about guys with piles of books reminded me of Heroes Con 2014, where one of the featured guests was Art Adams. Love Art Adams. He says, now when I when I saw Art Adams name as a guest, I knew what book I had to bring. The Godzilla color special from Dark uh, from Dark Horse, the first Godzilla comic I ever owned and my favorite Godzilla comic ever. I 
think I remember this one just because of the fact it had a, an R. Adams cover. I think I kind of remember this. It says, I got that issue new off the stands in 1992 and had read it uh, dozens of times. So that was my big one that year. And I had to get R. Adams to sign my copy of it so I could tell him how much that comic meant to me. Cut to the show. I go see Adams second after Mike Zeck, whom I knew I was going to have, uh, who I, whom I knew was going to have a big line. And the line was about 10 to 15 deep. I had planned on it uh, being a wait, so I just started flipping through the color special again to pass the time. The guy in front of me turns to me and asks what I was reading. And when I uh, get to talking about Adam's, uh, and we get to talking about Adam's work, it was then that I realized that he had uh, an honest-to-God rolling suitcase full of books just for Adam's. He opened it up and started showing off some of the stuff in there. I think it might have been every single Marvel book Adams had ever done. Everything from Uncanny X-Men annuals to random issues of Cloak and Dagger and Fantastic Four and everything in between. Graciously, the guy let me cut ahead of him at least. I talked with Adams for a few minutes about the comic, and he looked genuinely bemused uh, that I had brought it as opposed to some of his superhero stuff. We talked about how the Toho Brass did not like his art, but years later... Uh, he saw an image from that issue used as promotional art at their HQ. That I wonder if that pissed him off. That that sort of thing it sounds like it off. would. It yeah. sounds like it should. I don't know if it yeah. did. That's kind of a dick move. Yeah. Uh, so as I thanked him and the suitcase guy rolled up, I knew that the that stuff like that was going to be the lasting impression. Uh, from doing this show, and I hope that my conversation with him might help mitigate uh, mitigate that somewhat. Uh, but I don't have any confidence that it did. So I just want to make sure I understood what Luke was saying, that uh, that he was afraid that, you know, this might be the, the impression, the lasting impression for our Adams, I'm thinking, uh, as of this guy. And he was hoping that, you know, him having actually gone and had a genuine conversation with Adams would uh, would help mitigate, you know, this other clown that just walked up. You know, this is what Chris Honeywell calls a humper. And I think that's a, a very apt term for these people. <laughs> Uh, but that was my first experience with the quote-unquote way-too-many-books guy at a con, and it has stuck with me. Whether the guy was a dealer or a fan, how can you honestly think that it is in any way acceptable to bring an actual suitcase full of comics to a convention for one guy to sign? I know that comics are supposedly mainstream, uh, mainstream now, but sometimes our behavior as comic fans seems stuck in a time warp. Abso-friggin-lutely. I totally agree with you. Well, you know, you know what it shows to me. It shows you that we may have a niche hobby that was a, or it may have been a niche hobby twenty years ago, and now it's become widespread. But whether it's niche or whether it's widespread, no matter what, you take a large enough sampling of people, you're going to find some whore assholes. Assholes, and I, I think it's a, I think it's a nasty combination of a couple of things. I think that you, you obviously you have your assholes, but I think we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, we, we have some very negative stereotypes in this particular fandom. And unfortunately, stereotypes exist for a reason because, and it pains me to say this, the reason that you wind up with television shows like Big Bang Theory is because unfortunately, we are still a significant number of us out there that are just socially retarded. And that's really what this, sort of, this type of 
behavior comes down to is that, yeah, I agree with you. There's dicks that will do it and not think anything of it or be like, well, whatever, I paid my money, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's just as many of them, maybe more of them out there that do this and don't think anything of it. They, they just It never occurs to them that, hey, maybe that's a dick move and I shouldn't do that. No, absolutely, it doesn't occur to them. <laughs> There's no question. They 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 just think you know they they have this sense of entitlement. They think right. I bought your book and you you know I bought your book so now you have to sign it for me. And that right. just you know you, I think you need to show some respect. I think it, it's a it's a two road you know it's a it's a two two way road. Right. You know we need to show respect to the creators because you know they're people and we still we need right. to not treat them like somehow we've bought them because we a comic now on the other hand you know you you've all heard my rant of uh two weeks ago and uh i think the creators need to show us a little respect too sometimes oh absolutely yeah so it, it, it's it definitely you know, is it's a two-way street it is but but Damn, I, I, know, think, I think it could stand a little improvement on both ends i think it's a real shame that charlton heston is dead because we really need him at this point going comic creators are people <laughs> Uh, Luke wraps up by saying, unfortunately, I will not be able to attend Heroes Con this year due to a conflict, nor Tampa Bay Comic Con also due to a conflict. Dude, you need to resolve these conflicts, all right? Uh, but hoping I can join some subset of you guys at a con in the near future. Absolutely. We need that to happen. Yeah, Just I'd love to do a face-to-face with Luke. We, we have yet to meet in person. That would be We cool. have met in person. Um, he's not an attractive gentleman, but... You no, know, would, no, would you expect him to be? No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> no, Luke is a hell of a nice guy. Really, really nice guy. And it was it was a pleasure to meet him. And I, I agree with what he's saying here. I hope that we, uh, we do get together for some... Well, hell, it doesn't even have to be a con. You know, this this last meetup we just had in New York, I think, proves the fact that we don't need a con. We don't need need any reason to get together than uh, than a reason to get together. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. and I'm just as cool with that. I I had a blast. I thought that was a lot of fun. And Luke, you were missed, buddy. Your name came up several times. So I want to make sure you know that. Uh, He wraps up. And it was often not followed by expletives. Right. (laughs) Or, or prefaced. <laughs> he says, keep making these Back to the Binge shows, and I will keep listening. And again, that's from Luke Giaconetti. Yeah. Okay, let's do one more. Okay. We have time enough to squeeze in, because the next one's kind of a short one. Sure. It's from Isaac Miner, and it is titled Descent into Comic Book Madness. Bins crew, congratulations. You guys are responsible for my Descent into Comic Book Madness. I started listening to your show three years ago, and I have enjoyed it ever since. However, I have a bone to pick with you guys, because now I collect and read a ton of comics. Seriously, though, your coverage of these random comics is fantastic. I listen to you guys every day at work, and really applaud you all on a fantastic show. Thanks, and keep plundering those bins. (laughs) Isaac in Michigan. Thanks a lot, Isaac. I, I, I have to say, I, you know... We joke around about having big egos and big heads and wanting, you know, our ego stroked or whatever. I don't think any of the three of us really do. In fact, I think if anything, if anything, the three of us sometimes scratch our heads wondering why people listen to us. But it does make me and I'm sure Scott and Bill also feel really good to know that there are people that get pleasure out of our show and that, you know, we're not just doing this for our own benefit, although that is the primary reason, but there, that there are people who are really out there enjoying it and Thank you for letting us know. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I love emails like this. I really do. 
Be sure you're not a stranger, dude. Write in. Let us know more. Well, now I'm curious, like, what what are you buying? What did you hear us talking about that you're like, damn, I got to go find that? That's the kind of stuff I really like to know, too, is like, what what have we said that inspired you to go and, and seek it out? And what did you think of it when you finally got it? And that, you know, that sort of thing. What would you like to hear us cover? Yeah, well, like, like for example, the, you know, Russell Bragg, who's primarily a DC guy, uh, you know, heard our Avengers Spotlight coverage of the Corvax Saga and went out and bought the trade of the Corvax Saga. And, you know, then we, we actually had him on the show to talk about what he thought about it. But that's pretty cool. The fact that we're covering it made him want to go out and buy it. I think everything about that is awesome, except the fact that we don't get kickbacks from shit like that. Because that's, I mean, over the course of, of all the time that the shows on the Two True Freaks network have inspired somebody to actually seek out the, the book, product, story, whatever you want to call it, that we've discussed... You know, we we could we could be filthy, stinking, rolling in cash, rich at this point if we just gotten a kickback on that stuff. We're, we get we're not. <laughs> yeah, right. But no, I do I do think that's cool. I I think it's cool. You know that that we can go on and on about this stuff, and somebody actually values our silly little opinions enough to go hey that sounds cool i i gotta check that out that that's very rewarding in itself that's that's a good feeling yeah i with you 100 percent. but that you know that said on the flip side i hate you people oh. <laughs> i'm just yeah exactly i am just as open to if if that's ever been the case where you're like you know, you listen to one of us talk about something and then you sought it out and then you read it yourself and you're like wow that's shit I'd like to hear that too, with the caveat that I'm not buying the book for you. I'm not. I'm not covering your expense on that. That shit's on you. But I would. I would actually. You know. I would get a kick out of that, depending on what it was. You know. I would say I welcome well-reasoned dissenting opinions. Right. No matter which direction they go in. Uh, you know, we could say, "Oh, we think this thing is great," and you could say, "Oh boy, I really didn't like this." And, and it can be as simple as I really didn't like this. But if you can actually articulate why you didn't like it, that's even better. Right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I can use as an example, well, he was actually on the show. But, you know, Scott and I particularly did not care for uh, George Tusk's artwork. And we happened to have Luke on the show, the episode where we were discussing it. And Luke likes George Tusk's artwork. So, you know, he, he was explaining why he likes it. We were explaining why he didn't. Neither of us changed each other's opinions. Right. But I can respect that he felt the way he did. He did point out a couple of sequences that were pretty decent. Right. And, and uh, you know, well, well you know, I, I, I kind of like hearing why people disagree. So, if you know, if we said something was great and you didn't like it, I'm curious as to why. If you, he said something sucked and you liked it, I'm curious as to why. Write in. Let us know. Yeah, that's true too. I mean, I am I am open to you know trying to be swayed or having my my eyes opened or whatever because there are God I I could not tell you how many books and whatever books movies whatever exist out there that I know have rabid fandoms and I just look at it and scratch my head and go what what the hell are they seeing in this that I just don't get. Um, you know, perfect example. We were just talking about it a couple episodes ago about um, Darwin Cook's New Frontier. Now, I want to preface this by saying I don't hate it or anything. I just I have it. I've read it a couple of times trying to understand what other people I just don't get it. I look at it and I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's a it's a 
fair at best Elseworlds story. But other people just piss their pants over it. And I just I just don't get it. I just don't see what the big friggin' deal is with that. I, and, I'd say I'm somewhere in between them and you. I think I liked it more than you, but it's not like, you know, on my all time list of favorites. Right. You know, but I enjoyed it. I, I think it's very I don't think I would like it as like an ongoing Right, but as as a you know not a one shot because it was several issues actually before it was collected, uh, but as as a short run, just kind of a you know an old time feeling book. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of fun, and I don't know, maybe maybe I'm uh, I, I don't I'm certainly not in the minority because most people seem to like it, but it's it's hard to articulate exactly what about it made it special. I I just think it's kind of that cartoony feel that gives it kind of an old time feel. Plus, it's supposed to take place a while ago. You know, I think it takes place kind of when these comics were first coming out, like in the late '50s, early '60s, and and that that gives it kind of a, a nostalgic animated feel that it was just fun for a short run. Right. I mean that that was just one example, you know, that I thought of just off the top of my head. But there there are so many. I mean, there's so many, uh, especially comics out there that just for whatever reason get get held up and and lauded as you know great or awesome or fan favorites or whatever and i just kind of sit back and scratch my head and go i i don't know i read that and just i didn't think much of it or in some instances i just outright i'm like i'm sorry but that sucked and can't quite understand you know what it is other people are seeing in it but that said like you know my, my point is i uh you know i, I never I, I try never to just you know, that's it. That's the final opinion. I'm always open to somebody, you know, opening my eyes about it and, and at least trying to uh, clue me in on, OK, w- what are they seeing about it or what what truly is awesome about it or whatever? You know, it's, you know, there have been instances where, you know, I've had my opinion sway because it's like, OK, I didn't get this the first time. Now I see what they were going for. And OK, this this changes the dynamic of it. Um, and then there's instances where that didn't work so well either, you know, uh, you know, classic example. I remember way back when, when we had, uh, Chris Johnson on the show and we were sitting down to talk about, um, Batman Arkham Asylum, which is a book. I mean, that's one of the greatest examples of a book that I just don't get the, the hoopla behind that. Cause I, from the moment I picked that book up, I have. I still maintain to that to this day that that book is a piece of shit. But he generously came on and, you know, devoted his time to to trying to sway me and everything. And what was funny was this episode that was intended to last, you know, potentially hours. I don't think it lasted very long at all because right out of the gate, he's like, well, you know, this is a dream, right? And I'm like, wait, what? And that (laughs) that explanation both solved the problem but seriously pissed me off at the same rate it's like no so i don't know if you don't know what i'm talking about go back and seek that episode out because listening to it in hindsight it's actually pretty funny but at the time i i couldn't have been more pissed off (laughs) i'm like wait what so yeah all all it did was make the the problem it just exacerbated the problem learning that all my issues with this ultimately didn't matter because the whole thing was just a dream which was really the problem with it in the first place is that it because it's a dream it doesn't make any sense but i guess intentionally doesn't make i don't know it was really screwy but i still maintain that book is a piece of crap (laughs) 
That's all I got. All right. And I think that'll do it for today's episode. We'll save. We still have some email in the bag, and we could save that for next time. We'll leave a little for the doctor. Yeah, it's time for him to read some of this crap. <laughs> all right. And uh, that'll do it for this week. So thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you all next week. Bye. I miss you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody, what's up? Dr. Bill in the house.